Well, let's start just by reading those verses, shall we? First Thessalonians, probably the earliest letter in the New Testament. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, and it's a, a lot less formal in, than many of Paul's other letters. We were saying this morning that usually, you know, Paul has a chunk of doctrine at the start of his letter, and then at the end of it, he turns around and says, this is how you ought to live. You don't find the same division quite in First Thessalonians because it's a very personal letter too, isn't it? Probably written in a hurry to a church that Paul had longed to get back to but couldn't. And so the teaching and the, the instruction about learning runs all the way through. Uh, and it's all mixed up together. But anyhow, let's read those verses. First Thessalonians 2, 1 to 16. You know, brothers, says Paul. Thank you, sir. That's great. I know it's fresh as well. That's great. You know, it's one of the rules you learn as a, as a preacher when, when, when you start out. Never drink the, the water in churches. You don't know where it's been. But uh, I, that's great. So, First Thessalonians 2, verse 1. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives. Nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to, to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you. But we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, yet as it actually is. The word of God is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Okay, that's the section that we're going to read tonight. Um, you go on from verse 17 next week. Um, let's just remind ourselves, I, I'm not sure if you did this at the start of the series, but uh, probably, let's remind ourselves anyway of, oh, wait a minute, what's happened here? Come on, you can do it. That's it. Of uh, what exactly happened in Thessalonica. 
which was one of the most vibrant churches in, in, in the early uh, years of the Christian church. And you can trace it through the book of Acts. The people who came from Thessalonica, who did things, you can trace it through history, the way in which the church in Thessalonica became an important point of mission for uh, outreach into the, all of the countries round about, the great Christians who came from Thessalonica. And in chapter one, you've got a fantastic description of what a healthy church looks like. It's a brilliant description of a great church. And Paul points out all sorts of things that he knows about the Thessalonians, which he's thrilled about. And in chapter two, he's going on here to talk about why that happened, <laughs> where it started from. How do you produce a church like that? Well, it was Paul's second missionary journey that started everything off. And you'll remember that Paul uh, came to Thessalonica from Philippi. There's uh, Thessalonica in the green circle there. And uh, Paul spoke in the synagogue in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths. Now, we don't know if that was all the time he had in Thessalonica, three weeks, or if there was more. Uh, scholars disagree about that. But certainly he was there in the synagogue, as he usually was when he went to a new town, preaching for three weeks. And uh, some Jews... Some, many Greeks and several prominent women, it said, came out of the synagogue and formed a new church. Um, so it was a mixture right from the start. <laughs> people of a pagan background, people of a Jewish background. And they had to learn how to be the church in very difficult circumstances. Because very shortly after that, Paul's enemies raised a crowd to start a riot. By the way, I don't know if you noticed the picture that I started this with on the title slide there, but that was a picture of the old Agora, the marketplace in Thessalonica. And it says in Acts that the enemies of Paul went out into the Agora and picked up some of the loafers who were hanging around there and said, come on, we're going to have a fight. <laughs> and so were the people uh, from that very place who started the trouble. And the city's authorities became alarmed. Now, Paul wasn't thrown into prison here, although he could have seen that coming because it's what happened in Philippi, but uh, he had to leave the city in a hurry. And at nightfall that night, the Christians smuggled Paul and Silas out of the town. There were others there, there uh, as well. Timothy was there. Luke was probably there. So we don't know what happened to them. Perhaps they weren't in the forefront, and so it was safer for them to stay. But eventually, uh, uh, Paul moved on down the coast, and Timothy eventually got sent back to Thessalonica to see how the church was doing. This is where it all, it, it all happens. There's Thessalonica. There's Philippi, where Paul had just been before this. Paul and Silas, you remember, were in jail in Philippi, and they were still reeling from that when they came down to Thess Thessalonica. We had previously suffered and been insulted at Philippi, as you know. That word insulted is not a very good translation. There was more than insults going on in Philippi. And um, Paul had had a pretty bad experience, and so as he came to Thessalonica, he was probably praying for an easier time this time around. And it seemed to work that way to start with. But then after three weeks, everything went pear-shaped, and he had to go off to Berea. And it says in the book of Acts about Berea, doesn't it, that the people who were in the synagogue in Berea were more honourable than those in Thessalonica, because they looked at the scriptures very carefully and said, is this actually so? Is this message true? And you kind of get a feeling about Thessalonica that they were lovely people, and Paul loved them a great deal, but they were people who would jump at things, and they weren't necessarily people who would think everything through before they, 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 they went on board with it. And so Paul was very, very concerned that these Thessalonians, who seemed to have become Christians so easily, would stick with it. And when you're an evangelist, you, you, you do worry like that. When you see people come to Christ almost too easily, you sort of think, are they going to stick or are they not? Is this just something that's going to go away? It's all too easy. 
And so he was quite worried, I think, about what he'd left behind in Thessalonica. But there was no way that he could go back. And so he moved on to Athens. Um, and it was either from there or from Corinth, which is his next port of call, that he sent Timothy off back to Thessalonica, then heard what was going on, and then wrote the letter to them that we're reading tonight. So that's basically what happened. Uh, Paul heard the Thessalonians were suffering uh, after he had left them. This is a still from the, the Bible Project movie about First Thessalonians, seven minutes of it. It's, it's quite worth looking at if, if, if you feel like that. And Timothy says, I'm on it. And off he goes to Thessalonica and uh, uh, finds how well the church is doing despite the persecution they are still facing and how well they remember Paul and uh, they want to, uh, to um, see him again. So, what about this chapter then? Well, I think the verses we've read break down quite nicely into three different places. First of all, there's when they came. <laughs> what was it like when Paul first arrived in Thessalonica with Sylvanus, Silas, Timothy, and, and the, the, the bunch? Uh, what were they expecting and what did happen? Then second, there's while they were there. And the passage tells us a lot about how they acted while they were preaching and planting the church and getting people used to what it meant to be Christians and live the Christian life in a discipleship kind of a way. And then the third thing is after they left, what happened when they left. So let's just have a look at those three things. The first thing I think confronts us with the challenge of simplicity, as I've called it, in verses one to six. When they came, how did they come and preach the message? How did they play it? It hadn't gone down a bundle in Philippi, Okay, Lydia had become a Christian at one end of society, and the Philippian jailer had become a Christian at the other end. It was great. There was a little church that was going to last for centuries. It had already been planted. A fire had been lit in Philippi, but at what a cost. Was that partly their fault? Should they have done things a little bit differently? Was there a change they could make in their message? Or in their approach to things? Could they be a bit more clever in the way that they sold the message? And the challenge of simplicity is a challenge that says, well, how do we appear to other people? How do we manipulate what we've got to say so that it becomes acceptable to them? And should we do that? Then, while they were there, I think that uh, takes us on in verses 7 to 12 to think about the challenge of service. How do you help people become Christians? How do you help them find the maturity in Christ that will last even when you're taken out of the picture? When you walk away, is it all going to last or is it all going to fall down? That's the challenge of service. How much of yourself do you have to put into what you're doing? And the third thing, after they left, I've called it the challenge of steadiness <laughs> because it would have been so easy for the Thessalonians to lose their enthusiasm, to run into the ground, and to forget all about the message that they, they once embarked on believing. So those are the three things, uh, and I just want to look at those three things a little bit uh, with you tonight. First of all, let's look at when they came, the challenge of simplicity. Here's Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke marching down the road from Philippi to Thessalonica, getting ready to preach again. And Paul says in the verses we read, our visit to you was not a failure. Literally in Greek, that is, our visit to you was not empty. It wasn't short on results. It wasn't that nothing happened when we came to Thessalonica. And he said, uh, although we'd, been, we'd suffered and we'd been insulted, we dare to tell you the gospel in spite of opposition. We realized it was going to be difficult, but we still went ahead and did what we always did. We were just faithful to the message. Now, they could have been thinking, but they weren't on the way in. 
Maybe we should tone down the message a bit. Could get ugly. Let's do a soft sell here. Let's not tell them the whole thing. Let's just 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 uh, uh, give it the best best approach we possibly can. And uh, I suppose uh, Luke could have been thinking if we say enough nice things about them, we could make some money here. <laughs> after all, they're going to look after us. They'll be grateful to us if they become Christians. So you know, we could do what we do out of this. And we repay some of the costs that we've embarked on. Silas could have been thinking, well, you know, we'll have to make them see how important we are. We're apostles of Christ, after all, and then if we do that, they'll respect us. And Timothy at the back, nobody back home will know what we've been up to. Now, obviously, that wasn't the way they were thinking, but that's the way it's possible for people to think when they spread the gospel today. And there are plenty of evangelists and Christian organizations and groups who have got fairly mixed motives for the way that they preach. Paul did not tone down his message. He told exactly what he was supposed to tell because it wasn't his message. Ultimately, it was something that had been, he says here, doesn't he, entrusted to him by God. It was God's message and not his. And so all he could do was deliver it. And he didn't have the right to change it or tweak it or alter anything about it. We speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And he says, we're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. So although he wanted people to respond, he wanted to gain as favorable a hearing for himself as he possibly could. He wasn't going to change an iota of the message. It had to be delivered plainly and clearly so people could make up their own minds about it. How about if we say enough nice things about them, we could make some money? Paul says there's no greed involved in what we're doing. Now, the ancient world at that point was full of uh, wandering teachers, philosophers, people who were starting cults, going around and selling their ideas in town centre after town centre. And, of course, when Paul went to Athens a little bit later on, and he's speaking uh, in the Marnham place, some of the local philosophers say, what is this babbler saying? And that word babbler really means somebody who was of that stripe, somebody who went around teaching his bits of threadbare philosophy in the hope of making some money out of it. So it was an accepted thing. You went around, you gave people ideas that they found interesting, and they gave you some money back. But Paul wasn't about that. He wasn't trying to make money for himself. His motivation was quite different. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. God's entrusted me with this incredible message, and I've got to deliver it. I can't not do it. So money is irrelevant. God will supply everything I need. Uh, and and I, I can be easy in my mind about that to make sure I've got the money I need. I can work hard while I'm preaching the gospel. And so he says here to the Thessalonians, do you remember when I was with you? We didn't impose on you. We weren't a financial burden on you. You remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden on anyone. We, we worked really hard because our needs were none of your concern. If you wanted to support us, that's great. And of course, the Thessalonians later on did support Paul again and again. They, they rallied to his help in all sorts of circumstances, but not because he asked, just because they felt that because of the love of Christ in them, they wanted to. That's healthy Christianity. That's the way that Paul wanted it. How about we'll have to make them see how important are them will respect us? Paul said, yeah, well, we could, once you'd realize that we were apostles of Christ, have been a burden on you. Uh, I could have, 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 after you'd accepted the message, you might have thought, well, who are these guys then? Where have they come from? They have come with a message that's transformed our lives. They must be very, very important. 
This is the Apostle Paul. This is Silas. Whoa, they are apostles. They're some of the most important people in the universe. I used to work a lot back in the 1980s with cult members of one sort or another. I'll tell you the story sometime about how I got involved in that. But um, I got to know people who were prominent in various cults in the, the 70s and 80s, like the Moonies, uh, uh, the Children of God, and so on and so forth. And what you find in some Christian cults like that very often is the worship of a person who starts just as someone who is quite ordinary, and then is, it builds up a reputation for himself and his followers. Take David Berg, for instance, of the children of God. Now, he started in the Christian church. His parents were both evangelists. And uh, they uh, believed that they had had a prophecy about their son when he was just seven years old. And they made the mistake of telling him what that, prophet, what that prophecy actually was. And the prophecy was that he would become the greatest evangelist of the 20th century. And so he grew up thinking that was what God had destined him for. After he'd graduated from high school, he went off and worked with another, another older evangelist for a while uh, and then felt, you know, he was not getting the recognition he deserved. He was supposed to be God's greatest servant. And so he left and started his own ministry. And it was a fairly straightforward uh, evangelistic setup to start with. And then young people started getting involved with him. And in Malibu Beach in California, a bunch of uh, hippies and dropouts uh, from the psychedelic revolution started to gather around them. And his teaching became harder and more challenging as time went by. And he, he, he got them learning Bible verses every day, out on the streets all the time, challenging people, believing that the, the second coming was just uh, around the corner. And then they, he became too big for his own boots. And he started believing that he was so holy and so important to God that he could do anything he wanted. And the end result of that, that was that one day his followers detected that he was involved in uh, an affair with his secretary, as well as uh, being married to his, his wife. And they sat him down and said, David, this is wrong. This is not what you should be doing. And instead of disciplining him, because he was bigger than they were, they had a prayer meeting instead. And out of that prayer meeting came another prophecy. A prophecy, this was a parable that God was giving to the church. That just as God had set as, uh, as David had set aside his old bride and had taken on a new bride, his secretary, so God was setting aside his old bride, the Christian church, and was taking David Berg's movement, the children of God, as new people. And so the Christian churches of the world were Babylon. You couldn't have anything to do with him any longer. You could only follow God's prophet. Who was God's prophet? David Berg. And so he became, from being a simple evangelist, sharing a message which he'd been given, someone who was the total authority at the heart of, of the movement. And of course, from there on, the story's well known. The movement got further and further into all kinds of evil behavior, duplicity, money grubbing, all sorts of bad things going on sexually, all sorts of things, simply because he had made himself more important than he actually was. And that's just one story of many that you, you, you can trace again and again in the history of movements like this. Paul says, look, we didn't do that. We're not like that. Um, I didn't come to, to make ourselves big. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her children. And the way we behaved... Uh, showed that we were not really interested in ourselves. We were simply interested in giving you 
the true message. We're not trying to please men, he said, but God who knows our hearts. Because we're not trying to make you accountable to us, except insofar as we are accountable to God. And God knows our hearts. So that's the final phrase on here, isn't it? Nobody back home will know what we're up to. That doesn't matter. The important thing is that God knows. And there are too many shams and frauds going on in supposedly Christian work around the world today. Oh, there are some great things as well. I'm not denying that. But we've seen just over the last few years, haven't we? Scandals where Christian leaders have been shown up to be something very, very different from all that they claim to be. And that causes a real problem for those who become Christians through their ministry. If somebody has led you to Christ and then proves to have been proving a me- uh, preaching a message that they don't live out themselves, is that message true? Can you trust it? And many, many people have fallen away from faith in the last few years simply because the person that they thought had introduced them to Jesus was a sham himself. So if he's a sham, this message about Jesus is a sham as well. And you can see how people lose their faith. So they came in. Even after the trouble and the difficulty they'd had in, in Philippi and the, 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 the difficulties they'd had before then, uh, traveling through the province of Asia, wondering where God was sending them, not really sure, uh, and, and, until Paul had this vision about come over to uh, Asia, uh, Europe and help us. And uh, uh, all of those things were in the past. They weren't trying to make life easier for themselves. They were just prepared to go on doing what God had sent them to do. And that's the way in which healthy churches are planted. But that's just the first point. That was when they came. The second thing we've got to look at is why we're there. The challenge of service. You see, what, how do you share the gospels people in a way that makes sense to them? How do you help them from that initial stage of interest right through to mature Christianity? It's kind of like having a baby, isn't it? <laughs> if a Christian baby is born again, then the person who brings that baby to birth becomes the spiritual parent of the spiritual child. Okay, it's, uh, the, 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 the new life that's infused in some, someone is given by God. It's not given by the preacher. But at the same time, if you're responsible for the birth of a baby, you're responsible for the upbringing after that. Paul certainly saw things that way. Do you remember how he writes in 1 Corinthians 4 to the Corinthians? Look, I'm not trying to shame you. I, I'm saying hard things to you here, but I just want you to hear these. And it's not because I don't love you, it's because I do. And he says, listen, you may have 10,000 guardians in Christ, but you do not have many fathers. For through Christ Jesus, I have become your father through the gospel. In other words, as you go on in your Christian life, you have lots of people who do things that help you and move you on. They'll give you insights into scripture that you didn't have before. They'll lend you helpful books. They'll invite you to conferences. They'll sit down and come to you when you're crying. They'll do all kinds of things for you. And they are your guardians in Christ. And there will be thousands of them in the course of a lifetime. I know certainly I've got loads and loads of people who've done things that have helped me uh, keep going as a Christian. And I'm incredibly grateful to all of them, but I can't remember them. There are so many of them. Some stick out in my mind. Other people I know have done things for me in the past that have been important, and yet I hardly remember who they were. And Paul says, you know, you have all of these influences in your life, but you will not have many fathers. In Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. 
And if you're a father or a mother of a new Christian baby, you need to spend time with them. And that's why Paul speaks of himself and the, the others in his group here as not just fathers, but mothers uh, to the Thessalonians as well. He says, just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. There's nobody more important in the universe to a new baby who's being nursed than a mother. She's the source of all of the, 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 the food and the help and the reassurance and the love that that baby needs. But uh, a father needs to be there as well. You know, he says, that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. And uh, he talks about the things that uh, a father often does to challenge the family uh, to move forward. Um, he says that uh, what they did was we, we dealt with you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And it wasn't just a general kind of preaching a message, spraying outwards to a multitude. It was an individual, personal job. We dealt with each of you, he says, as a father deals with his children. It wasn't just, here's the message, take it and use it if you can. It was a case of getting to individuals and saying, now what are your specific needs? How can I challenge you in a way that's going to help you? How can I give you the inspiration that you need in your particular situation to follow Jesus better? And so the job of a spiritual parent is super important. Um, it's all too easy for us if we're not careful just to give the message out. And when somebody responds to say, okay, well, uh, that's great. Well, here's a copy of some Bible reading notes. Uh, do these every day for the next 14 days. And uh, come to church on Sunday. And uh, yes, have a nice life. And uh, if I don't see you before that, I'll see you in heaven. <laughs> you can't do that, can you? A new baby needs, needs, needs to be looked after. You know, when a baby's born in a maternity hospital, you don't go to and say, right, baby, you're coming home to live with us. Um, here's a list of the rules of the house. Um, food will be on the table at 9 o'clock in the morning and 6.30, and uh, I'll make sure you're there for it. You can't do that. A baby's going to take a lot of care and attention and help before it's ready to grow up into a mature uh, being. And that's the same case with spiritual babies, isn't it? And Paul says this is the way that we behave. He says the same thing in his other letters too, doesn't he? For example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says this. What we preach is not ourselves, but two things. Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. And those two things belong together, don't they? Because why should anybody believe that Jesus is Lord, unless they see that reflected in your behavior, that you are now their servant, for Jesus' sake? Um... This verse always makes me think about the woman at the well, you know, in John chapter 4. Do you know the point at which she becomes convinced that uh, Jesus really is uh, the, 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 the one who's able to give the living water, the Son of God himself, the one who's going to help people worship the Father in spirit and truth? It's when his disciples come back. She's been sitting there at the well with Jesus, having this conversation with him, Gradually inching towards thinking, this man is interesting. He's a teacher. No, he's a prophet. No, he might be something more. And then she sees the disciples coming back from town and thinks, uh-oh, now we're in trouble. This rather unusual Jew will talk to me, a woman with a dubious reputation, but now these guys are coming back. They are his disciples. 
Oh dear me, they're going to come in and say, Master, what's I'm doing? This, you know, this woman, she's, she's bad news. I mean, for your reputation, you've got to, you know, a, a good Jewish teacher wouldn't be seen talking to the likes of her. And John says in John chapter 4 that when the disciples came back, they didn't say a word. And then the woman realized, this is the Christ, the Son of God. Because she saw the faithfulness of the disciples to the Master. She saw that they weren't going to do anything that he wouldn't do. They were in subjection to him. That was when she started to realize here was something different. Not a bunch of Jews who wanted to look down on her, but people who were subject to a master who, for some strange reason, really valued her and respected her and wanted to spend time with her. And because he had time for her, they had time for her. And that's the way it's got to be, isn't it? If we preach Jesus Christ as Lord, we are also preaching ourselves as people's servants. And if we're not prepared for the service that's involved in helping them come to new life and, and then see Christ formed in them, then we're not prepared to share the gospel. It all belongs together. Do you remember Galatians chapter 4? looked at that a wee while back. where The, the Apostle Paul dealing with a bunch of people who have really lost, uh, lost uh, their in initial way says to my little children, I'm, I, I'm almost going through labor once again until Christ is formed in you. You know, the agony of bringing you to Christ in the first place was just like a woman bringing a baby to birth. And now you're born, I've got to do it all over again. And it can be that way, can't it? Sometimes new Christians are not easy to look after. They don't answer, ask the right questions. <laughs> They don't understand everything you say to them. They don't live in a way that you would hope that they would live always. They have incredibly complicated, tangled lives and problems and difficulties in their families and their jobs and the things they've done in the past and the mistakes they've made. And somehow, you've got to help make sense of that with the grace of God and the wisdom that God provides. And so Paul says that's the way it is. The challenge of service, ourselves as your servants for God's sake. And the church that's going to grow, like the Thessalonians were growing, is going to be the church that takes on that attitude towards the service of others in the name of Jesus. <laughs> There's a third thing, though, and we need to fill this in before we're finished, and that's what happened after they left. Because this is the point at which the ball gets passed to the Thessalonians, isn't it? Paul cannot physically get back. Sure, he can send Timothy back in, but Timothy's still quite young at this point. He's not capable of, of leading a church as he will be later on. I mean, if you, you read uh, uh, Paul's uh, first and second letters to Timothy, you find how nervous Timothy was even in those days after he'd knocked around the ancient world and learned all sorts of lessons from the Apostle Paul. Paul still has to say, stir up the gift that's in you. Don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. You know, um, you know God has given you a gift. Do you speak up? Uh, treat people in the way they ought to be treated, but, but at the same time, don't be scared to take authority. Timothy wasn't the sort of guy, especially as young as he was at this point, just a few months on the road with Paul. He wasn't the sort of guy you could send back into Thessalonica. Okay, on you go, Timothy, you sort them out. Oh, they needed lots of teaching. They needed lots of help. Timothy couldn't supply it. Paul couldn't supply it. What was going to happen? Where was it all going to come from? And the only answer in those days was God himself. Were they going to make it or were they not? I remember um, back in the late 1980s having to go to a conference in the Philippines, the Lausanne 2 conference, when 4,000 leaders from around the world uh, got together to discuss evangelism. 
And uh, I, I was there not, not as a speaker or a, you know, a, a diplomat or anything like that. I was there to sell books. Because <laughs> in those days, I was working for World Evangelical Fellowship. I was their publishing editor, and they had nobody else to run the bookstall. So I spent most of my day selling books in seven different currencies, and uh, getting, getting my brain being absolutely seized up by the evening because I've never been good at maths anyway. And uh, in between that, ducking into some of the sessions of the conference. I remember one night thinking, I am really bushed. I've got a terrible headache. There's no way I can go into the, the conference tonight. And uh, I thought, nah, I'm Scottish. They've sent me here at vast expense. You know, the air ticket costs £700. I've got to go into the session and pick up something from it. It's a one-in-a-once-in-a-lifetime chance. So I walked through the door. The session had already started. And I was so glad I did. Because up on the stage was an old Chinese man. A man called George Chen. Somebody who had been an evangelist and church planter in China in the days before the revolution. And he'd been imprisoned for 10, 15 years, uh, perhaps longer than that, but certainly 10 or 15 years. Uh, and uh, he'd had a horrible, horrible time. I knew about him because I'd been given just a little bit of his story to edit. And so I'd always wondered what George Chen looked like. And there he was in front of me, telling his story to the audience. And uh, he talked, for example, about... Um, I think I may have told you this bit before, about how in the prison he was given the perfect job to do. He said the problem was he wouldn't stop singing hymns. <laughs> and the communist Red Guards didn't like that much. And so they threatened him with all sorts of things and gave him dirtier and dirtier jobs to do because he wouldn't stop praying to God and having a little worship time until eventually, uh, not knowing what to do with him, they gave him the worst job in the prison. And that was wading into the cesspool. Uh, up to your waist in human filth to check on the filters and things like that. And he said it was great. He said it became the holiest place in the prison for me. Because when I was 20 feet out in the cesspool, up to my waist in human excrement, he said there was no way anybody would come in after me and I could sing as loudly as I wanted. <laughs> and it was great. I, I remember him standing up there on the stage and saying, would you like me to sing you one of my cesspool songs? And everyone went, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he started singing. I still remember his thin, reedy voice over the microphone uh, that night just singing. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his woman. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. But the great thing about George Chen, that, uh, that uh, is why I'm telling his story tonight, really, is that when he was sent into prison, he was just like Paul with the Thessalonians. He'd been working in the salt province on the east coast of China, and he'd, he'd seen a church planted which was big and strong, full of young people, but not very mature. And he didn't know when he went into prison what would happen to him. And so uh, he said uh, in the, the, the manuscript I edited, as soon as I got out of the prison, I, I hurried back to the salt province to see if my church still existed, if there were any people there from those who led to Christ. And he said, not only were there many of them there, but there were lots of new families, young people, people who'd been babies when I'd been there before, and they'd grown up, and they were strong, mature Christians and leaders in the church. And I said to them, who's done this thing? What evangelist? What teacher has been here? And they said, nobody. Nobody came. It is Jesus, Jesus himself, who has built his church. And that's exactly what was happening in Thessalonica. They not only kept going, they flourished, and history proved that. So what was it 
after Paul and Timothy and the others left that kept them going and made them steady in this faith that was growing inside them. I think there are three things that Paul says here which give us a bit of a clue. First of all, he says, when we were there, you received God's word. Now, that word received is an important word. It means taking something with care. We've been um, uh, painting our dining room this week, um, which is always a terrible ordeal for me, but we did it. And uh, one of the things we had to do is clear everything out just so we could paint the walls. And uh, we have some things in there which are not, not expensive or anything like that. They're precious to us for various things. I remember taking these things out of the cabinet and thinking, now I've got to put this down somewhere safe. And some of them I would hand on to Anthea and she'd go and put them somewhere even safe. And uh, um, we did that with immense care because those things mattered to us. Now that's the idea that lies behind this word received. It's the word that's used for in, in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul says, what I received from the Lord, I passed on to you. And then he tells all the details of the resurrection. This is something that I've received and handed on with great care. And so the Thessalonians received the word of, the, of God with care. They didn't just sit in the synagogue and think, huh, well, that's what this preacher thinks. Who's on next? No, this is amazing. This is wonderful. We want this. And so they received God's word and they were grateful for it. The second thing, though, is it says they welcomed God's word. You received uh, God's word, says, says, says the Apostle Paul, and you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. To accept it, again, that's a poor, weak translation of the word. It doesn't just mean, no, thank you very much. That's the word of God. Thank you. I'll, I'll use this. No, it means to prize something, to welcome it in a sense of, oh, wow. Oh, thanks. Oh, thank you so much. And so they not only received it with appreciation, but they made it part of their life. They welcomed it in. They prized it. They put it on the top shelf. They wanted everybody to know about it. And so that, again, is one of the secrets of, of why uh, they kept steady. They knew they were involved in something that was wonderful, life-expanding, something that you couldn't get anywhere else. And they realized that what they had been given was, was something you couldn't do without. It's like Peter, isn't it, saying to James, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's that kind of feeling. You have given us something which is so precious, we cannot go back to life the way it was before. And then there's a third thing. They copied God's people. They became imitators of the Christians uh, in, in Judea, where the church had started out, where the persecution against Christians was growing. And uh, the Apostle Paul would be caught up in it, wouldn't he, as soon as he went back to Jerusalem a few years later, um, uh, where Christians were having a hard time. At first, it had been so easy. And then after the stoning of Stephen, People had to scatter all over the place because they were just uh, uh, unwanted in that community any longer. And so Paul says here, listen, you've imitated those people, those Christians who thought, now what? Do we give up? Do we keep going? We're going to keep going. You brothers became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen. The same thing those churches suffered from Jews. We never thought people who were our kinsmen People who were our countrymen, people who were just like us, people who were our next door neighbours would turn on us, but have done. Does that mean that Christianity is not worth it? No, it doesn't. <laughs> and you 
have, have had the same experience as people in Judea. When those who are closest to you, those who should know you and understand you best, just treat you as enemies, become hostile to you because of what you believe, and you just keep on going. There may be an important message for us to, to hear in this society in the West becomes more and more hostile uh, to Christian uh, thinking, Christian ideas, Christian morality. We are living in a world which is pretty much discarded. Many of the ideas that have been built up through hundreds of years of Christian faith and uh, even worse is not really realizing how much it's discarding. And Christians are being treated in a more and more hostile way. And we need to learn to react in the same way that these people in Thessalonica did. With grace, with determination, with stamina to see out the race to the end. And so they copied God's people. And we can copy others who've been through similar situations that we have to go through as we try to stand steady uh, for Jesus Christ. George Verwer, um, the international coordinator of Operation Mobilization, used to say um, in his talks again and again and again, he only about five different things he used to say, George, but they were very powerful. And uh, one of the things he used to say was, read biography. Young people, read biography. And what he meant by that was, listen, if you just look at the inspiring example of some of the men and women of faith who've lived in, lived in previous centuries, who've been in similar situations to you and far worse, and who've come through it triumphantly for the cause of Christ, then that will help you. It will give you a model that you can imitate. It will give you a, a solutions to problems you're facing. It will give you a, a sense that, yeah, you can get through it. You can make a success of this. And so read biography. Look at other people and copy their example. Something the Apostle Paul says several times, isn't it, in his letters? And it can sound quite big-headed. Be imitators of me. But there's another bit to it. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. In other words, copy me. But Paul wasn't saying wear the same sunglasses. You know, uh, uh, use, look like the same food that I do. Do everything the way I do because I'm perfect, I'm right. No, he's saying only in as much as you see Jesus in me, in those things, copy me. And he could say it confidently, copy me, imitate me. Because he knew that there were things in his life that you could copy. And so when he writes Second Timothy at the end of his life, a letter that he writes as he knows the end can't be far away, he doesn't have to say very much. And that's one reason that Second Timothy only has four chapters. Because Paul has already shown Timothy in his life what um, he's talking about and, and, and the way that Timothy ought to live. And he's confident he can leave this young Christian on his own to look after that gigantic church in Ephesus in all of the problems and difficulties it's facing because he has seen before him visibly, concretely, how a Christian missionary behaves. And so Paul says to, to um, Timothy in, in chapter 1, Timothy, whatever you've seen in me, you've heard from me, do it. And he says, you know all about me. You've seen me through and through. You've traveled with me all sorts of situations. What you've heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. He says, you know me. You know my doctrine. You know my life. You know my purpose. You know all of the things that have characterized me. Imitate me. <laughs> Would I say that to anybody younger than myself? Imitate me. I don't know. But I should be able to, shouldn't I? And so should you. We have to become people whom others in their turn can copy. 
And that was certainly what happened to the Thessalonians. They became a church which was a beacon in their whole area along the coast in that part of Greece. And people all over the place started looking at them and saying, that's how you follow Jesus. That's how you have a worthwhile life. This is the way that we want to go. So chapter 1 tells us what a great church looks like. Chapter 2 tells us that's how you get there. Kev, are you coming back up? Great.